0: So, as Dwayne mentioned, uh, my name is Paul, and I'm at uh, Penn Valley Church in Telford. I'm the pastor of family ministries there, so I do a lot with um, the youth group and stuff like that, but I do a little bit of everything. And uh, because we're all in the same network, I've gotten to know Adam uh, pretty well, and I'm just super appreciative for him. He's a great guy, a great leader, and um, a great encourager. So... Uh, it's exciting to be here because I'm always uh, really excited to hear about all the good stuff that's been going on here, as far as the um, the parade float and the um, um, the different men's and women's groups that are going on. Really exciting stuff. It's a real privilege to be here to uh, share the word with you this morning. And as I was preparing for the message today, I was reminded of a poem that's called Invictus. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's it's one of the most well-known modern poems. It's been quoted by lots of famous and powerful people like Winston Churchill, Barack Obama. It's one of these things that shows up a lot in Hollywood movies and and car commercials and stuff like that. Invictus is really a defiant hymn. It's, It's a hymn all about human resolve Human resilience. It's about how the world is a cruel and random place. If there are any gods, they really don't care, and there's no hope from above. All there is is the strength within each person to overcome their own obstacles and create their own fate. The second uh, stanza in *Invictus*. Hopefully, I can advance. There it goes. Uh, it goes like this. It says, "In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud." under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. And the poem ends with this very bold kind of uh, proclamation. It says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This morning, we're going to look at the second half of Isaiah 40. We're going to start in verse 12 of Isaiah 40. I encourage you to to turn there or pull it up on your phone. Um, I, I'm going to be going off to NIV, but uh, the ESV will be close enough to, to follow along there. As we come to Isaiah 40, we find God's people in some of their darkest days in all of the Old Testament. They're about to be taken away from the promised land and put back in captivity. All around them is the shadow of the wilderness once again. And in that moment... They're going to have to answer this question. Who will be the master of their fate? Who will be the captain of their soul? Will they have confidence in God against all of the odds and rest in his greatness? Or will they say, like the poet of Invictus here, that God has abandoned them, that they're on their own to tough it out? And the problems are large, but Isaiah will... Ask them, how big is your God compared to your fears, compared to your doubts? And that same question will come to all of us as we face trials and obstacles in our own lives. Can you really place all of your confidence in God and what will happen if you choose to wait on Him? And these are the questions we'll talk about, but let's open with a word of prayer here before we do. God, we thank you for bringing bringing us to this place this morning Um, Each person in this room today has a reason for being here, and I I just pray that you'd meet all of us where we're at, that you would lead us, that your word would form us and shape us. It's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and I pray that you'd use it this morning to accomplish your purposes. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Adam has been uh, teaching through the book of Acts with you guys. This morning we're obviously dropping back quite a ways to the Old Testament. But the situation for the new believers in the book of Acts is similar in a lot of ways to what Israel is going through here when Isaiah writes to them. A passage like this one that we're going to be looking at would have been a great encouragement to those early Christians in Acts who were were facing persecutions and all kinds of hardships for their faith. And in fact, Isaiah is referenced multiple times throughout the book of Acts because of that. And it's because Isaiah is writing to people who are about to be taken away to a foreign land uh, which doesn't know God. Not too long after this writing, the brutal, super-powerful empire of Babylon is going to come in, conquer Israel, conquer Judah, and move the people away into exile Babylon. So Isaiah is talking about future events. He's predicting the future. And all the way up through the book of Isaiah, through uh, chapter 39, it's talking about these judgments that are coming and why they're coming. And then starting in chapter 40, where we're going to be looking, Isaiah is comforting the people that God's in control. He's calling them to trust in Him through all the hardships that are coming. And the first point that we're going to see him make as we open this up is, is this, that keeping a right perspective on God gives you a right perspective on your problems. Keeping a right perspective of God gives you a right perspective on your problems. And perspective is, is important. If you know anything about photography, you know that in photography and in life, perspective is everything. And if your perspective is off, it's very easy to get a wrong idea about what's actually taking place. Uh, Problems can look much bigger than they really are. You can get a wrong sense of your own importance if your problems, if your perspective is off. Without a proper perspective, sometimes life can just get incredibly confusing. And so when it comes to your life, it's important to keep things in perspective, especially though serious things, the most important things, who God is, what your relationship with Him is, and how He is involved in this world. And Isaiah starts here in verse 12. Uh, He says this, "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, or with the breadth of His hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance?" Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? So so this is where Isaiah starts. He says, if you're wondering where God is in the crisis that you're facing... If you're trying to understand what he's doing, he's saying, here's where you start. Here's where you begin, with the awe, with proper awe of who and what God is. And you need to begin with the right perspective on how little you and I really understand when it comes down to it. Isaiah says, who can comprehend fully God? What human being can claim to fully grasp and understand God? The nature and the will of the being who has created all things for whom the earth and everything in it can't even be compared. It's illogical to even make a comparison. Every hair on your head, the scripture says, every grain of dust on the earth, all created personally by God, all known to God. How many grains of dust are in your own house? I wonder. I Personally, I wouldn't want to know the answer to that question. I definitely don't want to know how many hairs are still on my head. Some things are best left to God. And we've got to realize that He's beyond us. But He's spoken to us. And we're called to trust and what he said. Much later in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, in the book of Romans, Paul will reference these same words in this passage as he's answering questions about why some people will come to faith and some people won't. And so he says in Romans eleven thirty three 33 through 34, O oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. All right, so this is the first component of having a right perspective on God. According to Isaiah here, he says the first part of this is remembering that God is infinitely greater than ourselves as human beings. There's a, a guy by the name of Ed Welch who does a lot of counseling ministry and has written a lot of books about counseling. And he has said, uh, he wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And the idea is just that, uh, that the reason many of us struggle with uh, people-pleasing and and. and the struggle for many of us, including myself, the reasons teenagers struggle with peer pressure, all of these things, why people are jealous, bullies on one hand or timid and fearful on the other, comes down to one fundamental issue, one diagnosis at the root of it. And that is that people are too big. In our perspective, what people think of us is too big. Our reputation is too big. And the answer that we receive is to fear people less and to fear God more. In Proverbs uh, 29, 25, if I can get there, um, Paul, uh, uh, Solomon writes, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And uh, this is kind of the unpacking of it that Ed Welch does. He says, Fear includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to, some, to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people. Worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. So here's the question, who is it this morning that you're living to impress? And if the answer that comes is something other than God, then maybe today take a few minutes to think through what it would look like to reorient that perspective, to Follow God without fear of man getting in the way. And Isaiah is saying you have to get this one right so that when the hard stuff comes, when the trials come, you can get through it. The second component that he gets into to having right perspective is to realize that God is infinitely greater, not just than human beings, but God is infinitely greater also than nations. And here's what he, what he does as we pick up in verse 15. He says, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Now, you might hear that, and that last part kind of sounds harsh, but it's not saying that God doesn't care about nations, doesn't care about governments. It's not saying that at all. What it is saying, though, is that even the most powerful nations, even the biggest earthly powers can't even be compared to the control that God has over human history. can't even be put in an equation. For all of the expert planning, for all of the scheming and the power they don't even have a say, ultimately, in what happens. doesn't matter if it's Iran, doesn't matter if it's China or Russia, the UN, or even the United States. None of them can alter the plan of God for His world and for His people. That's why our identity shouldn't rest in being the citizens of any country. It shouldn't rest in any political party. The identity that matters is that we're citizens of the kingdom of God which is not a democracy, it's a theocracy. Jesus is king, and it's a kingdom which doesn't pass away, even as nations come and go. And I think that's a wonderful truth to rest in, because when you think back over the last 2,000 years, there's been all kinds of empires and governments that have come and gone, Christian empires, non-Christian empires. None of it has stopped, though, the kingdom of Jesus Christ from going forward, and nothing that happens in the future of the world will stop it. We jump down to verse 23 in this chapter, and Isaiah goes on, he says, He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. So, here the Israelites are at the brink. They're at the brink of a disastrous war. And a couple weeks ago, if you've been following the news at all, you know that there was a significant chance that war was going to break out between the United States and Iran. And as things have cooled off over the last week or so, the headlines were saying things like, Back from the brink. Back from the brink of war. But that place, the brink there, those feelings that you might have felt a little bit the other week, that's where Israel is. Now, of course, the situation is much, much worse for them. Imagine if you were watching those developments a couple weeks ago and knowing that if war broke out, the battles would take place in our homeland, in our community. In all likelihood, we'd be defeated and taken away as prisoners from our homes. I, I, think, I think knowing something like that, the fear would be paralyzing. We don't read this in Isaiah and, and it's, it's like, oh, Israel, get it together. Oh, Israel, have a little faith. No, this is legitimate. This is terrible, terrible fear, terrible loss that these people are facing. And so when Isaiah says these things, it's not empty words. This is the truth that they'll need to cling on to with everything they have Through the storm that's coming. And they need to do that so that they can do what Jesus would talk about later in Matthew 10 when he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Realize Jesus isn't saying this to be threatening, he's saying the same thing Isaiah is saying keep the right perspective. Remember, the people were created to know God and to know Him for who He is and for what He is. And when we don't do that, our problems can become disproportionately large to us. And the truth that comes to the Israelites and the truth that comes to you and I as we face troubles is that God is bigger. God is bigger than our fears, bigger than all the things even that we're attached to in this life. And it's when we can accept that, when we can believe it, not just with our minds, but in our hearts, that this unshakable kind of peace takes root. And that's where God wants to get each and every one of us. And it brings us to the third component of having a right perspective on God, which is this. He is infinitely (coughs) greater, not just than humanity, not just the nations, but than man-made gods as well. And so we'll continue on now in verse 18. It says, With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. So at this point, it should be pretty obvious that false gods and idols are are worthless if you kind of follow the reasoning here. He's already described how humanity and its nations are God-made and therefore can't be compared to him. Well, here, now getting to the third thing, it's something which is man-made. So it's even a a step further down the chain. And all Isaiah really does here, all he has to do to make his point is to describe these idols factually, just present the evidence. Idol worshippers in Canaan and Babylon in those days made their so-called gods with whatever they had on hand. They just had to make sure that they wouldn't rot. Otherwise, they'd be worshiping a god who was literally rotting, passing through the digestive tracts of termites and other insects. Not only this, but they had to carefully prop up their gods to make sure that they wouldn't fall over and break on the ground. And the insinuation is, how fearful and powerful and terrifying can your God be if you need to take precautions against them falling down and hurting themselves? There's a sense of absurdity there, but before we get too puffed up hearing it, remember that the idols that tempt us today are just as pointless, just as temporary. That's why in... 1 Corinthians, Paul says to us and to the New Testament church, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And here today, we may not have a Marduk statue in our living room or Asherah pole at our homes, but that doesn't mean that there isn't idolatry which has snuck into our lives. And I don't know what it is that tempts you, but I know that all of us are prone to wander often after the first shiny thing that catches our eye. It could be material idols. It could be the accumulation of wealth, the desire to have bigger and better things than other people. It reminds me of an article I saw recently that was pretty interesting. They're they're finding that house size in America has increased and is increasing very rapidly and, in fact, each newly built house in 1973 had an average of about, uh, about 500 square feet per resident, and now today it's nearly twice that and almost thousand square feet per resident on average. And yet in spite of the larger sizes, they're finding people are not actually happier with their homes. And the reason they found that, I find, to be the most interesting part. They they said that on average it's the top 10% of biggest house owners who are the most pleased with their homes. But as soon as bigger houses pop up nearby, their satisfaction plummets to make those very same people the least satisfied with their homes. And the researcher put his findings this way. He said, if I bought a house... To feel like I'm the king of my neighborhood, but a new king arises, it makes me feel very bad about my house. And all of it's just a, a long way to say what Isaiah has already said that idolatry does not lead to happiness. Now it doesn't have to be houses and stuff, it could be something completely different. That's not the point. The point is that anything which is placed before Jesus is acting as an idol in our lives. And Isaiah is warning, all of that will fade away. All of it is temporary. It might be nice for a while, but at the end of life, it's just gotten in the way. So invest your life in what really matters and not in idols. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's the question. What are the idols today in your life which need to be thrown out in the garbage? What needs to be allowed to topple over and break apart? And maybe today there's something that you need to say... No to, which is getting between you and God. And what if this week you took aside one of your brothers and sisters here and said, I need you to help keep me accountable to this? Or maybe there's something that you know God would have you say yes to, which you've been putting off because of something else. And what if today you took a positive step, even a small step, towards saying yes to that thing. Because in doing these things, even a little step, what you're doing is taking out the supports, the structures for the idol that you've been keeping propped up. Back with Isaiah, at this point, I think we we get it. We get the message. God is infinitely and incomparably greater than people, than nations, than idols. He's in control. Now, the whole time that Isaiah has been saying these things. He's been asking it in forms of questions. He's saying, have you not heard? Do you not know that he's in control? He's asking these leading questions. And now, getting to the end of the chapter of Isaiah 40, he gets to his point, because, of course, the answer is yes. Every Israelite has heard, probably from a young age, the facts about God. They have the knowledge. They have the theology and yet, even with all that, they're burdened down by dread and doubt here as they stand on the brink of disaster. The truth about God might be in their head, but it still needs to get fully into their hearts. And when that takes place, then we can move from self-confidence to God-confidence. And here's, here's the key passage that brings all of this home, and we We see it in verse 27. It says, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the of the week, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's not unusual when when things are going badly for people to feel like God must just not care about them. Have Have you ever been there? I've been there. I can say that. And that's what they're saying here in Isaiah. My cause is disregarded by my God. What a terrible feeling. But here God says, no, that's not what's taking place. That's not the situation at all. Notice first he calls them Jacob and Israel to remind them who they are. And he could say those same names to you. Ephesians 2 says, you who were strangers to the covenants of promise have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so just as he's been faithful to those who have come before us, in the same way we know that he'll be faithful to us in the future. Then he says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. He's pointing out that even the strongest, even the most high-energy people eventually run out of strength, run out of willpower. Uh, last Sunday, January 12th, was a, an important day in our culture. I don't know if anybody knows uh, what that date is, January 12th. That, uh, that's actually the day, statistically, that most New Year's resolutions fail. A couple years ago, on, they did a big study, a social media thing. They, they looked at like 31 million people, and they found that most people make it until exactly January 12th and then give up on their New Year's resolutions. That's just 12 days. Another study about the same thing showed that only 8% of people successfully stick with their New Year's resolutions and goals long-term. That's just a a small handful of people uh, in this room today. Why are these numbers so bad? I think the answer is because willpower only gets you so far, and it's not very far, apparently. Isn't it good to know, though, that all of this Christianity stuff is not about our willpower? It's about His power, and, and that's why in Philippians it says, being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. People talk a lot about self-confidence. Everywhere you go, you'll hear about the importance of of having self-confidence, but but notice that's not necessarily what the Scripture points us to here. It's not saying it's self-confidence that you need, but rather God-confidence, confidence confidence in Him. And what does this God-confidence do to us? Well, look at these final words here, this conclusion of this long argument by Isaiah He says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. All who hope on the Lord will renew their strength, it says. But it doesn't say it will always look the same. It doesn't say it will always be the same. Look how there are actually three seasons of faith here at the end of this chapter. In the first, we're told that believers will soar on wings like eagles. It's a picture of living this abundant life that Jesus talks about when he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. One thing about eagles is that they fly higher than other birds, and in the same way, the true fullness of the experience of life belongs to the ones who are in touch with the Creator and with his design for the world. Another thing about eagles is they live vigorously, even into very old age. And in the same way, the Christian life sustains people all throughout their days. And I've even heard some people say that their relationship with Jesus grows sweeter and more precious to them as life goes on. But you see here other times it's not about soaring the spiritual heights, but rather just running the race with perseverance not becoming weary, not giving up or growing discouraged and knowing that you're secure always in the Father's hand. And finally, as Isaiah comes to the very end here, the focus is narrowed way down all the way from the infinite power and might of God over the whole universe to his care for the individual believer through their everyday lives. And finally, to the person for whom it's all they can do to keep walking. To the one who's struggling, who's secretly hurting, who feels alone, but in those times God is there holding them up, keeping them from fainting, keeping them walking by faith even when not by sight. It's like the massive power plant harnessing the incredible raging power of nuclear fission And yet powering a family's home, even down to the nightlight in the room of the sleeping baby. No matter where you're at, put your hope in God and he will renew your strength. When you're standing at the brink, when you're in the everyday routine, or when you're soaring the spiritual heights, it's God confidence that will keep you strong in the fight. So, after all of this, where does that leave Invictus? Where does that leave the unconquerable will of humankind? Well, Isaiah is telling a different story here than that. The Israelites will be facing dark years ahead, unthinkably so, and in that darkness, willpower and resolve will not be enough to make it through. And so, at the end of the day, it isn't the brash, defiant, proclamation, I am the captain of my fate, but rather the quiet strength of the passenger. A passenger like Horatio Spafford, who was on board the ship crossing over the very spot at sea where a terrible tragedy had taken place in his family when he wrote the words to the hymn that we just sung earlier. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And it can be well with our souls this morning, and why? Only because this very all-powerful creator has come into the world that he created and died on behalf of sinners. And if you're here this morning and you don't know for certain that your sins are covered, not in part, but as a whole, then don't go any longer without turning to Jesus in faith by confessing your sin and crying out to Jesus as your Savior, even in the silence of prayer, you'll be heard. For those here who are Jesus' followers and yet are burdened by the fear of man or some other idolatry, would you let this be the day that you lay those things aside, that you lean on Christ completely and entrust yourself to his arms and to his wings? Let's pray. God, we worship you and we glorify you this morning for who you are, and we confess that you are greater. We confess that you are greater than anything else in this universe that you've created. So often we look to ourselves, we seek to rely on our own strength and and wisdom when your call to us is to trust wholly in you. God, as we go from this place this morning, help us to keep a right perspective of You, of your greatness, help us to rest in you in all the seasons of faith that we come through. God, we thank you most of all for Jesus who came for us, who was raised up not on eagle's wings, but on a cruel cross to bear our sins, that we could live an abundant life of gratefulness. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us in that walk each day. In Jesus' name. (coughs) Thank you. <coughs>